Hello, I'm Rhiannon. You're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. Today on the show is part seven of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. China has warned the United States against imposing its democratic ideals on other countries. It says such a move will only create divisions and undermine stability. We're witnessing a rise of China as a regional and international superpower. And as a result, there arise fundamental tensions between liberal democracies and China's fundamentally authoritarian ideals. Moreover, China's looming grip on Taiwan and Hong Kong has increasingly made headlines around the world, calling into question the effect of authoritarianism and its clash with liberal democratic values in the region more broadly. Because of China's uh, way of governance, which it has successively implemented for several decades, it has also encouraged, I think, the resurgence of uh, conservative and uh, illiberal powers in East and Southeast Asia. Today's guest is Dr. Roger Huang. Roger is a lecturer in terrorism studies and political violence at Macquarie University in Sydney. We chat about the relationship between democracy, China and Chinese culture, the issues surrounding liberal democracy and China's influence in the region, and finally, whether Sino-American tensions will eventuate into a new Cold War. Welcome, Dr. Roger Huang, to the Global Questions podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Well, thanks for having me. To kick us off, are you able to give us a bit of context on your academic and professional background and how you became interested in the area of international relations? Sure. So I'm a lecturer in uh, terrorism studies and political violence at Macquarie University with the uh, Department of Security Studies and Criminology. Now, I have a bit of an interesting background. I'm uh, technically Taiwanese-American. Um, Taiwan being one of the, those countries that's not internationally recognized, but the broader uh, international community. Um, at the same time, I actually grew up in Bangkok, Thailand. So I've got a bit of a mixed background. And, and uh, um, because of my multiple nationalities, back in 2016, I was able to vote in three elections in three different jurisdictions. Wow, that's, that's very impressive. <laughs> So now today's in-depth episode is centered around the relationship between democracy and um, China and countries in Southeast Asia. Are you able just to give a brief intro into your perspective of this relationship? Sure. So China obviously is the kind of regional powerhouse in East and Southeast Asia, Indo-Pacific more broadly speaking. And of course, China represents the rise of authoritarianism and because of China's uh, way of governance, which it has successively implemented for several decades, it has also encouraged, I think, the resurgence of uh, conservative and uh, illiberal powers in East and Southeast Asia. Um, my own research background largely looks at um, kind of uh, Myanmar, Thailand, and Southeast Asia in general, but as, as well as Taiwan. And you can certainly see that liberal Democrats uh, or people with progressive liberal values in general in these, these part of the world is quite concerned of this uh, rise of China and the implication of China's authoritarian practices that's also filtering into everyday life in their respective societies. Mm. And so we see that often uh, liberal democracy is understood as a Western concept, but perhaps this is more outdated in contemporary society. What's your perspective on the proliferation of liberal democracy in the West versus elsewhere in the world? So there are a few things to untackle here. One, 
I am not a cultural kind of essentialist, right? You can see the variety of political systems throughout the world. If you think about fascism and totalitarian regimes, this has happened pretty much everywhere, right? You've obviously seen the rise of fascism in Italy. You've seen uh, Nazi uh, Germany, but of course, you also see kind of North Korea today. So authoritarianism, liberalism, it can exist in any society, in any cultural context. You're right, of course, historically, we think about liberalism and from the ideas of enlightenment and whatnot from a very Western Eurocentric perspective. And there is that philosophical uh, tradition that is accurate. But to say that uh, liberal democratic values and philosophy can only thrive or exist in the West is obviously factually inaccurate. Um, you see Taiwan, obviously, is one of the best examples of a very progressive liberal democracy, as well as Japan, South Korea, uh, India is normally kind of cited as one of the largest democracies, right, at least in terms of population in the world. Uh, one could also, of course, argue India as being one of the examples where democracy isn't exactly liberal. Yeah, we've recently touched on India as an interesting case study in our in-depth series. When we look at certain ideals that are present in Southeast Asia and particularly China as well, it's often said that Confucian ideals play a large role in governance. Do you agree with this statement? What does a Confucian system of government tend to look like in contemporary society? Yeah, I just kind of follow up on my earlier point where I really don't believe in cultural essentialist arguments. I mean, yes, Confucianism obviously has a long tradition, especially in East Asia cultures. But at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party uh, has been one of the biggest enemies of traditional Confucian values, right? It has attacked Confucianism for a couple of decades, especially during the Cultural Revolution, and has only revived uh, Confucianism really as a propaganda and a strategy uh, of control, of societal control. So again, it's institutions and a broader kind of historical processes that's more important than the actual culture itself. And just to kind of very briefly to finish on this point, you can again see the divergence of, for example, North versus South Korea in their respective political systems and the very difference in how their society um, you know, behaves in terms of pluralism. Hmm. You mentioned there that the Chinese Communist Party has used kind of Confucian ideologies more recently as a form of propaganda. Could you talk more to that point a bit? Sure. So I think the Chinese Communist Party has been very skillful in kind of navigating um, the changing international community, right? So when it really first uh, reopened you know, China to the world in the late 1970s, early 1980s, they have gone through obviously more than a decade of uh, the Cultural Revolution where they have rejected old Chinese uh, traditions and practices. And then suddenly um, they embraced the open economic reforms, right? But by about 2000, they started to recognize that they need a new form to re-legitimize the Chinese Communist Party in order to kind of have domination over their broader society. So they have really kind of looked to the past to use history, to rewrite history in many ways as well. The Chinese Communist Party has basically tried to link the ideas of old China, these traditional Confucian values as the Chinese Communist Party. So they've been very successful linking um, this idea of this 5,000 years of history has been now defended and protected or represented by the Chinese Communist Party. What do you think democracy looks like in countries where Chinese culture is really dominant? Is there democracy with Chinese characteristics? I think 
an easy way to answer this is saying, okay, Taiwan is, an, is a successful model of what a Chinese democracy could look like. But like I said, I think it's a very lazy way to understand culture and societies. Um, I personally don't like to equate Taiwan as an example or role model as a Chinese society, because in many ways it really isn't quote unquote Chinese, um, even though yes, language is similar and you have a historical long, uh, connection. What's your perspective on the relationship between Taiwan, China, and democracy more broadly? It's a very contentious topic at the moment, but yeah, I'd love to hear what your what your view is on the relationship. Yes, I, I like to, uh, given that we're based here in Australia, I like to use Australia as kind of a, a bit of a comparison, where Taiwan has a lot of similarities on kind of Australia's contemporary history, right? Yes, you have large European kind of uh, migrants that came to Australia. Similarly, you have a large amount of Chinese that uh, immigrated or fled or migrated to Taiwan for a variety of reasons. But you would not say Australia is part of the United Kingdom, just as you wouldn't say Taiwan is part of China today. The Chinese Communist Party has never governed or ruled Taiwan. So there's already this divergence in the political history of Taiwan to the rest of China. And um, how Taiwan then developed into this flourishing democracy in many ways is because it has this different historical experience, because it has, uh, you know, the influences of whether it's Japanese colonialism or Dutch colonialism or, or later the Chinese nationalists that came in. And that success of Taiwanese democracy in many ways is because the earlier uh, advocates for democracy also wanted to fight for indigenous Taiwanese rights. Hmm. That's really interesting. Thank you for kind of going into the relationship with Taiwan there. I think it's very important and necessary when we're talking about China in general. Kind of looking at democracy in China now, are there any democratic or even partially democratic institutions in mainland China? Um, so I think it's really hard to talk about democratic practices or institutions in China. And if anything, since uh, Xi Jinping has become the general secretary of the Chinese Communist Party, we have seen really kind of systematic crackdown of any kind of pluralistic practices that may potentially challenge the power of the CCP. So you might have seen or heard, of course, that even male celebrities that I seem as being too feminine, right, are now being cracked down in China because it does not reflect the, the traditional value, whatever that means, uh, that the Chinese Communist Party wants to portray. And that really is, again, more about control because the party does not want to have any uh, avenues for people to mobilize, right? You don't want to even have fan clubs to potentially mobilize against a regime or students or union workers or academics or journalists. And that's why you are seeing this systematic crackdown of any kind of divergence to the CCP's narrative. And uh, of course, the most evident kind of a crackdown you can see the biggest change, I would say, in any Chinese controlled areas or territories would of course be Hong Kong, which uh, had been really one of the most progressive liberal territories that was that's under Chinese sovereignty. We've focused a lot on the Indo-Pacific region. Now, kind of looking more broadly to the rest of the world, we're seeing Sino-American tensions are increasingly being painted in civilizational terms. You know, the US and China are entering a new Cold War. Do you think that there's a risk that mainland China might potentially take on the role of this undemocratic civilization in opposition to the democratic US camp? 
Yeah, so I, I just have to make a comment about the use of China and when we refer to China as a mainland. And, and um, I know this is a very common and, and general practice that you see everywhere, whether it's in the media or the news and elsewhere. But the whole idea of mainland China also really helps with that narrative that the Chinese Communist Party wants to use, right? So that's why they refer, they often like to use the word mainland. You know, mainland as opposed to what? Mm. But why should anyone else, perhaps other than people from Macau or Hong Kong, refer to China or anything other else than just China itself? Many journalists and a lot of even some academics fall into a trap and use it uncritically. But I think, especially for purpose of this podcast, we really need to reconsider why it is for people who are non-Chinese or non-Chinese nationalists when we refer to China as mainland China. Sorry, that doesn't really answer what your question was. No, no, no. It's a really interesting point. Thank you for pointing that out. Um, But back to the idea of whether China is kind of trying to present an alternative camp to the old US-centric system. I think, of course, that's been uh, evident that has been taking place over the last several years. We've seen how China has really tried to assert itself in these old international systems. So the United Nations, for example, you'd see that China has really um, now leads several of the agencies in the United Nations. At the same time, because of China kind of demonstrating its success as this alternative where you can have economic progress and you can have a strong power without introducing pluralism and liberalism and democracy. And that, I think, has uh, um, encouraged authoritarian leaders from other countries, whether it's Thailand or Cambodia or Myanmar or elsewhere, to also say, well, look, um, you know, China, and really I should also kind of comment on Russia here as well, have been able to get away with a lot of things. Um, and what is the United States or other uh, supposedly liberal democratic powers doing? Very little. They haven't been really able to counter the rise of authoritarian liberal values in the international system. And we've seen, of course, how China um, and its kind of authoritarian censorship has really kind of um, worked its way into, uh, even here into Australia. Uh, you'd probably be aware, of course, the latest is the the Australian Open, where some activists have been trying to wear T-shirts to ask where, where Peng Shuai is, one of the top Chinese tennis players uh, who uh, alleged um, sexual, basically, misconduct of one of the top Chinese uh, officials and has since effectively been silenced, right, in China. So activists have been trying to wear these shirts in Melbourne to go to tennis, uh, to watch the Australian Open and have been stopped. And... Uh, of course, Tennis Australia suggests this is because they have uh, policies uh, where people shouldn't wear political slogans, et cetera, and all that. But we also know in part it's because uh, you know, it's, it's a market consideration and China and Chinese businesses have been big sponsors of these uh, events. It's a really valid point and really interesting to touch on. That kind of brings us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to me today. If any of our guests and listeners want to reach out to you or read more of your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. So I have a public uh, profile at my uh, university webpage. So if you just Google my name, Roger Huang Macquarie, you should be able to find my contact details. I'm happy to uh, continue this conversation uh, by email or elsewhere. Great. Yeah, we'll definitely link that in our episode description. Roger, thank you so much. Thanks for having me again. That's all for this week's in-depth episode. Join us next week for the wrap-up, our fortnightly recap of news from around the world. In the meantime, follow us on Instagram for memes, quizzes, and regular news updates. Links are in the episode description. We'll see you next week.